I'm Katie. Welcome to Talking With Cancer. Thanks so much for being here. I started the podcast back in February 2022 when I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer called hobnail. And it was a way to keep my close friends and family up to date with my diagnosis and treatment. And that's evolved into what is now season three, where each week it's me plus a guest discussing all things about cancer. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. This is episode 10 of Talking With Cancer. And as ever, as I say every week, it's lovely to have you. So thank you for being here. I hope you liked last week's episode. It was in two parts because I spoke to two cancer patients, Adam Manley, who is living with thyroid cancer, and he has been living and working in France for the last few years, and a gentleman called David, who is living with lung cancer, but with the ROS1 gene, which is similar to me. It was great to chat to both of them about their story, and I hope you enjoyed that. So this week I speak to Rebecca Sofa and she is someone who I met many, many years ago. I have mentioned on here Reboot, which is a Jewish creative sort of media network organisation. It is full of incredibly interesting, successful in life. I don't mean multimillionaires. I mean, they've done amazing things with their lives. And we're just kind of part of this community. And of course, I never imagined fast forward 10 years or so that I'd be speaking to her on my own podcast. But we managed to speak in that community. She often talks about her work and she has written a book called The Modern Loss Handbook. It's an interactive guide to moving through grief and building your resilience. And it is a really beautiful book. So she says in the interview, actually, that like this book had to look good. It had to feel good. It had to be the kind of book that you would place on your coffee table. And it's definitely that. It's just a really great guide to living with grief. All the different elements that grief may look like, it may feel like, it may lead to different experiences, different ways of living your life. And it kind of touches on all of those different elements to grief. And it talks about all the different ways that you can manage that. So it's not about trying to get rid of your grief. It's about finding support and normalizing grief. So it's a really great book. I really recommend it. And I had such a great time chatting to Rebecca. She is extremely articulate. She is incredibly perceptive and she's taken her observations and her own personal experience of grief and she's turned it into this brilliant community and this brilliant resource. So I'm going to play the interview now. I hope you enjoy it. We've just been having a little catch up because I actually know Rebecca from years ago when we were just doing a tiny little bit of reminiscing, but it's so lovely to have you on. I teased you on last week's episode. This week I'm speaking to the co-creator of a brilliant concept called The Modern Loss, and she has now gone on to write a book called The Modern Loss Handbook, an interactive guide to moving through grief and building your resilience. Rebecca Sofa, welcome. Katie, I'm just delighted to be here hanging out with you today. Thanks for having me. It's so nice (laughs) to have you, Rebecca. It's so, so lovely. So yeah, we've talked about Reboot on here, actually, a brilliant creative media Jewish network. And we met on that 2012, I think I went. Wild. (laughs) Doesn't that feel like eons and eons and eons? Like, was that even a year (laughs) at this point? Totally. I know. But I've been following you and what you've been up to. and. Never did I think I would have a podcast one day that I'd interview you on, but here we are. Obviously, what this whole concept goes back to is your own personal experience of grief. So do you mind sharing with me that, please? Sure. And I have to say that, like, it's something that I have 
you know, unwittingly signed up to share repeatedly by virtue of what I do now, but it's never easy and it's never enjoyable to share this story. And it's like, not something that's become just like something I regurgitate, you know, without feeling. I went to Columbia Journalism School for my master's and I went straight from there to work for Stephen Colbert, the American comedian, political satirist. He had a show called The Colbert Report, which is where I wanted to apply all of my journalism skills. And while I was there, my mother was killed in a car accident. And I found myself suddenly living in the world of after, which is after loss, you know, after somebody incredibly meaningful in your life is no longer around. And I had to figure out how to wrap my head around that reality while also figure out how to build my life because I was 30. So I was a single 30-year-old New Yorker. I still had to go to work. I still had to pay my rent. I still had to navigate dating and, you know, looking at dogs to adopt and all these other things. All you know, the things build that mode. you go to your mom for that support and help Yeah, you. yeah. And like even at 30, yeah, because, you know, of she course. was my best friend and I just felt like I was really finally starting out in life because in New York, probably maybe like London, you know, 30 is like 21 <laughs> in many other parts of the country. And I yeah. really felt like I was finally cooking with gas. You know, I had my graduate degree. I was applying it to this great place that I really wanted to grow a career in. And all of a sudden, boom. Whoa, Rebecca, the shock of, yeah. All of it. You know very well, um, we all have our own things, you know, and that was mine in that moment. And that was my big thing that made me realize very quickly how isolating it is to go through something really, really hard that is also something that most people do not feel comfortable talking about. Mm -hmm. I realized very quickly how stigmatized it is to talk about grief and loss in an honest way, in a comfortable way, in a way that isn't relegated to, you know, a clergy member's, you know, I don't know what they call them, office, I don't know, or like, you know, your synagogue or um, your therapist's office, but rather just really talk about it out loud with like your colleagues and your friends and on a date. We don't do a good job of normalizing this stuff, which is ironic because it's like the most universal thing that can possibly happen to a human being. Mm -hmm. And so it was very lonely for me, even though I was surrounded by so many friends and colleagues who wanted to help and provide meaningful support. But so many of them didn't know how because of our culture, because we just don't do a good job of setting examples of how to do that. You know, we anchor our support instead in like platitudes and like offers that like no one really needs. And I got really tired of it, especially after my dad died, four years after my mom died, and I found myself with no living parents at the age of 34. And so that's really the only reason that I do this thing called modern loss. I would have never, ever chosen to do something like this otherwise, but I wanted to fill a hole in this, like, that existed in this conversation about grief and loss in a really comfortable way. Were you someone that was very open and therefore surprised? Because you've talked about how you suddenly, because of your personal experience and, you know, what was obviously incredibly difficult thing to go through. And then again, four years later, were you surprised that this was a subject people couldn't talk about? Were you always a very open person with all your emotions? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm somebody who typically wears their heart on their sleeve and even though they would love not to, you know, I'm very outwardly emotive. I'm a hugger. I love laughing. I love joy. I also feel the hard stuff. You know, I just am a deep feeler and it is who I am, mm -hmm. you know, and so by virtue of being a deep feeler, I need to express some of that outwardly because I can't keep it all in, you know, and I need to have the right safe channels through which to do it. I'm not somebody who just like dumps it all over Facebook or something like that. I just want to know that there are safe people in my life with whom I can share in controlled ways. But honestly, also by extension, as someone who is a deep feeler and also a journalist, you know, I have an inherent interest in other people's stories and in listening to what they're going through 
because I really feel like you really can just truly connect with someone when you are taking a beat and stopping thinking about what you're going to say in response to what they're going to say and just listening to what they're saying. I mean, it really is a way to connect with someone. I think that I was always a very open kind of extrovert. And so I don't think it hits introverts any less hard when they realize that grief is such a stigma. I just think that it hit me hard in a way that was like, well, I have so many friends. I love going out. I love socializing. But now I don't even know how to do that because I like really want to be a part of this group and feel like I'm a part of something. But I don't know how to talk about my big thing because Mm. like I'm walking into a room and I feel like a record is coming to a screeching halt because I'm like the one who's going through the thing that everyone is talking about, you know, salacious way, just in like, oh, Rebecca, like she's, you know, like this is thing it's happened to her. Like, don't upset her, you know? And it's like, I just wanted to feel like me. Like, I totally totally get that. My dad got diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer Mm. when I was 24. And he died when I was three years later, when I was 27. And for that chunk of time and afterwards, but particularly that period in my 20s, I get what you're saying. It was like, I didn't know how to be me because I was living with this stuff, but I didn't want to bring it to the party. You know what I mean? Literally the party. So why do you think when like the biggest thing that's happening to you, you know, why is there an elephant in the room? Like when the biggest thing is happening to you, people around you, they shush it away. They think it's better not to talk about it. Like as though it's going to remind you as though you'd forgotten for a second. Right, right. As though, yeah, as though like the worst possible thing will happen if you bring up their loss, which, you know, it's like, by the by, the worst thing already happened, (laughs) which was the loss, the illness, the grief. You're not making it any worse, I guarantee you. There's no possible human way that you can make it any worse by bringing it up. I think that we like thinking, you know, I think that people like to think, everybody, every human likes to, needs to feel like important and valued and effective. And I think that when it comes to like trying to provide support to somebody who's going through something hard, we put it on ourselves. We're like, we have to say the perfect thing. We have to fix their hard thing. You know, I'm like, it's up to me to make them feel better. And then we screw up because we think it's such a tall order. So we don't say anything because we don't know the right thing to say, or we, you know, say the wrong thing because we're not taught how to say the right things. And the truth is, is that we're not so important. (laughs) Like even someone's best friend isn't so important. Their job is not to erase someone's pain or make it, you know, not have happened. Their job is literally just to let someone know, hey, I see you in your thing. That looks awful. That looks hard. I'm not scared of it. Like, I don't think it's contagious. I'm cool sitting with you in this. We can talk. We can answer questions. We can avoid. We can do whatever you need to do. I'm here. Like that is someone's only job. That's so profound. It's so simple in a way, but you've nailed it. It's so simple. And that's why it's so interesting that like, you know, but it's so simple in the same way that like my husband finds Excel simple, you know, like I do not like (laughs) nor enjoy Excel, nor do I find it very simple. But to me, it's simple like this kind of stuff, because we make it complicated. You know, we feel like, oh, we have to like be a therapist or we have to like be a logistical expert or whatever. We just don't like, and we feel like we have to come up with like poetry or find the perfect quote to send on a Hallmark card. You know, you don't, you can send a completely blank card to someone and just say, Hey, you know, like share that you're so sorry that they're going through whatever hard thing it is and make it clear in your own words that you're there. You care. You can all even say that like you suck at it. Like you think you suck, like you're new at this stuff. You're new, (laughs) but you still care. You want to figure out how to support that person. It's charming. Like we are in the age, the golden age of storytelling, right? We can storytell on 1 million different social media platforms. And we storytell in real life, you know, productions all over the place, right? We storytell in politics, okay? So like this is just another... Form of storytelling, you know, just sharing, being open to asking someone to share their stories. That's all you need to do. 
So when you talk about that response, I've heard you talk about toxic positivity. Is it along those lines in the sense, because I talk about that as well often. I say, all you have to say to me is, how are you? And then accept my response for what it is. You know, I might tell you, I'm feeling really shit. I'm having a really hard time at the moment. I'm really feeling low and just take it, take it. Don't try to make it better. And then when I heard you talking about toxic positivity, which I have heard, I was like, I think that's what I'm trying to say. Is it? Can you tell me? Is that what you mean? Yeah. I mean, I think that like toxic positivity really is, and it's like a buzzword, right? It's like a hashtag toxic positivity. You know, I had never even heard of like this phrase until a couple of years ago. And I like it. I like it. You know why? Because I get really annoyed when I see just like lots of prayer hands or like the hands, like the two hands emojis, like going up in the sky, you know, on Instagram posts, like, oh, like having a hard day, but like, that's okay. Like I'll push through it prayer hands, like in response, you know, and that's, look, it's fine if that's how you get through your hard thing. By the way, totally fine. At Modern Loss, we say like, we don't judge anybody in terms of how they live their loss, as long as they're not hurting themselves or anybody else. Whatever you want to do that helps you, you do it. But what we do say is, if you are trying to actively provide meaningful support to somebody going through something hard, you need to make them feel seen in what it is and not brush it aside. You need to not offer assurances that aren't requested. Like it takes a year or like, you'll get through this. Like, it's like, what the hell? Like, just be in the moment with me, you know? Mm -hmm. You need to not compare, which is like, I know how you feel. You need to not like say, just think of like the things that are good and the gratitude. Think of like, you know, all the good things that you have or like you're overreacting or it's been a year, like trying to like reason with them and logic with somebody. That just doesn't work quite literally never works. I've met not one person who reacts well to this kind of faux support, you know? And I think that some people who offer it, maybe they are like really unempathic, you know? Maybe they really are. They don't have the ability or the desire to connect as well as they could. But I do think that the majority of people who say stuff like this, they don't really necessarily know that they're causing harm or just not helping. Of course. And they would probably love to know what they could do instead again like i don't think that most people are awful human beings walking the face of the earth you know like there are definitely a lot i've seen them lately <laughs> on the news but i think that just a lot of this is really it all points back to like we just have to do better talking about this more so that people learn through example mm-hmm Definitely. And here I am talking with cancer on a podcast. Yeah. So your personal experience then led to the creation of the modern loss. Can you talk a bit about that, how that all came about, please? Yeah, I mean, so it was 2013. It was exactly nine years ago. And I, this was something that I really wanted to do in the wake of her death. Uh, because I was 30. I was single, I was struggling, I was trying to figure it all out. And I was realizing that instead of like being drawn to you know, like websites that were more, you know, anchored in psychology or like religion or just like really cheesy platitudes. Pieces that were resonating with me were ones that were like in the back of the New York Times magazine, an essay about, you know, someone's relationship between grief and smell and memory, you know, food, conversations. It was really storytelling, you know, just like hearing other people's stories of what they were going through. It wasn't anything clinical <laughs> that was helping me the most. It was just feeling seen in other people's accounts, people who were willing their stories in ways that were kind of vulnerable and raw and honest without any pretense, you know, without any platitude, without any pretty bow, you know, tied at the end being like, and that was the end of my grief. And then I was okay. I needed to see the mess in other people. I needed to know that I wasn't the only one who was like, this is one fucking huge shit show. <laughs> like I needed to know that I wasn't the only one struggling more in year two than I was in year one, because it just felt so much more permanent then. I just needed to know all I needed to do was feel less alone because the people immediately around me could not make me feel that way because a lot of them did not 
personally relate to what I was going through. So I needed others accounts. And then by extension, I really needed examples of like post-traumatic growth because I needed to know that age 30, it wasn't all over just mm-hmm. because I felt like it was, you know, I mean, I really was, it sounds kind of silly, like, oh, I was 30 and my mom died. But guess what? When you're 30 and your mom dies, you feel like a toddler. Mm-hmm. It's your mom. When you're 40 and your mom dies, you probably feel like a toddler. 50. My grandmom was 89 when she died the same year as my mom, six months earlier. And my mom said to me one day, like a month later, she's like, you know, I know it sounds silly because grandmom was 89, but I'm realizing that a mom is a mom is a mom, you know? So who cares how old you are? And so I just needed examples of how other people were not only like proof that yes, it was a mess. Like I needed to like sign kind of like commiserate with others. Um, but also I needed examples of like how people were doing this. Like, how were you doing this? Like, how do you do grief and loss? How do you do it and date and work and like keep your finances together and keep your shit together and laugh and feel joy? Like, how do you do all of that? How do you deal with like the changes in not your personality, but like in the ways in which you make decisions or like your priorities how you navigate friendships. I needed examples of that from other people. I've loved examples of like ritual and not religious ritual, but like creative ritual. Like how do you get through like Hallmark holidays or just like Tuesday, (laughs) you know? And so that is where modern loss came from, which was my need to have this community. And So I created it with my friend, Gabby Berkner in 2013, which was launched as a website originally, modernloss.com. I waited many years, but six, seven years until after my mom died, three years after my dad died to launch it because I wanted it to be not the Rebecca project. I didn't want it to be like my personal blog. I wanted it to be an online publication that I could really do the standpoint of like, you know, a journalist, a publisher, an editor, and also like somebody who really got a comedic tone, a warm tone, knew how to storytell, knew the topics that should be covered, you know, and that is what we did. We launched it with like dozens of essays that were not by us, you know, narrowly focused essays around one aspect of the long arc of loss, not just that first year, any year. Of course. And it just took off very, very quickly because our tone is like really open. Uh, I am not a therapist. I am not a clinician. I am just like a person in the world who's like living with the stuff just like anyone else's. And so our tone is very, you know, we use a lot of humor. We're very body. It's just a reflection of what loss is, which is messy, unexpectedly hilarious and gut-wrenching, just like life. Yeah. You know, we just want to make everyone feel welcome. But what was your kind of vision for it or manifesto, if you like? What did you want it to be? Yeah. And that's a good question. And my answer is that I wish I were such a better planner than I actually am. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even know how to like launch a website, put it online. So even like that morning, I remember I was also nine months pregnant with my first child. So that was like, it was just a whirlwind of a time. (laughs) Yeah, I remember being like Googling, how do you put a website? Like, how do you make it live? Um, And (laughs) it went up and it just took off very quickly because people were very taken with the tone and just the unapologetic nature of it. You know, back then there were not so many outlets that talked about grief and loss like this. I know grief and loss, they're like the things to talk about now, but let me tell you for the majority of my time running modern loss over the last seven years and beating that drum, most people look at me like I'm kind of weird. Why do you want to talk about that? Why do you want to talk about death all day? That sounds kind of morbid, you know? And I'm like, that's weird. I don't recall working with one person who's dead in this yeah, project. Yeah, I was going to say, Every, it's you, know, not, you don't, because I'm interviewing a death doula on this yeah. series. And I am not you know, a death doula. Exactly. No. And it was like, I was kind of, you know, I wanted to make that clear distinction. Like, you don't talk about death, you talk about loss. I talk about loss and life, and even death doulas are dealing with life. You're alive until you're not. Yeah. Even death doulas 
that is very life affirming. You're helping someone get to the end. They're alive until the end. So I think everything <laughs> is very life affirming. I think Modern Loss is an incredibly life affirming project. I think it's an amazingly hopeful project because I'm trying to create and pull community together and help others feel seen and pull each other in and drag each other through this like messy shit together and laugh along the way and help them live better lives because of it feel less alone and so yes like I don't I think that was my goal that was like my manifest you know like my manifesto when I launched it but I didn't really have it's not like I had like the powerpoint in the business plan no I had like no clue what I was doing um I just knew the content I I knew the content that needed to be out there and I knew how I wanted to put it out there. I had a very, very strong sense of tone and content. Um, but what took us by surprise was how quickly uh, word spread about it. We got a lot of press very early on. I believe that just two months in, we were on the cover of the Sunday style section of the New York Times. And we were like, we're like, what is happening? Like, this is like a little WordPress site that I don't even understand how to update. You know, so like, it was just so wild. I couldn't keep up with the audience growth because I had a newborn and Gabby was pregnant and we were just trying to keep it going. So it's not like I had this huge plan for like growth and monetization. I didn't. It really was just like the mission that I was wed to, the tied to, devoted to, and am devoted to to this day. So in fact, I guess like Modern Loss and I have grown together, you know, like it has forced me to grow as it has taken on forms and gone into different channels that I never even knew it would go into. I've just kind of followed it via necessity through, you know, necessity or just like inspiration, you know, like, so I started doing live modern loss comedy shows around the country. And that's wow, something I, didn't I know always that. knew. That's amazing, yeah. Rebecca. So you were performing comedy, a live comedy show about Grief. Yeah, not me really. I was more producing it and emceeing it. So because my background is comedy and journalism, you know, I just have such a huge network of comedians and media people and whatnot. And so I started producing modern loss live storytelling shows, in New York, LA. We've, I mean, I've done them all over the country at this point. And I would pull in different comedians, really, uh, and comedy writers to share their stories and journalists, writers, um, musicians to share their own stories of loss, but do it in a way that was like really raw and funny and, you know, resonant. And so that is something that I always knew I wanted to do because I'm really an in real life kind of person. But the website was really important for me because that's how you reach the people who need to be reached at 2am who live in like, Little Rock, Arkansas or whatever, who, you know, are looking for that support and to feel seen. So I wanted that because I was that person, you know, I was the one on Google late night trying to find these, these communities. I wanted that community to be out there, that publication, all that content, but I also wanted there to be an in real life component to it. Um, so I do that. Um, I, Gabby and I wrote our first book four years ago and I, you know, I now do like a lot of public speaking at companies, at organizations, big corporations have finally realized that their employees are human, that are human people who need mental health support and community when they go through mm, hard things, especially yeah. in year three of a pandemic. And I think that just my willingness to kind of let it all hang out you know, it is very controlled for me. I don't like share everything, but I share enough that it makes others feel comfortable opening up. And that is what anyone really needs is an invitation to engage with this stuff. And so I figured out how to do it through various channels. You know, we have an, an online, we have a sub stack and there's a virtual community where we do virtual events, which started during COVID. You know, every month there's a mindfulness event. There's a yoga for grief support event. I interview different practitioners. And so just the key and the challenge and the delight has been into continuing to find different ways to reach people. And so your community is is global and all different ages and stages of grief and... Yes, I think that, you know, absolutely. I think that you live with loss across the long arc and, 
you know, maybe you think you might just need us that first month or year, but you realize when you're like, oh, maybe I'm not going to check Modern Loss Instagram so much for the next year. That's cool. Something's going to happen maybe the next year that's Mm going to hit you and you're going to come back and you're going to be really happy that that community is still there to catch you and to help you carry your burden. So we're trying to be this like stalwart presence that's like, oh, that's cool. Like you don't need us right now. Amazing. Like go do your thing. When you do, you know, when Mother's Day 2024 is really hard for you, or like maybe you've had a kid and you're missing your dad and whatever, like then come back. That's cool. You know, Yes. I don't want people to desperately need us every single day. That's not the point of it. The point is to give people a clear message that they have an ongoing invitation to engage with it when they need to, because that is what we need. That is what calms us, anchors us, and frees up energy for us to literally just live our lives and figure out ways to take care of ourselves. How long has the Modern Loss Handbook been in the making? So you wrote a book previously with Gabby, and then you've written this handbook by yourself. It's such a great handbook. I've picked out a few things that I want to talk about, but how did this actual handbook come about, Rebecca? Yeah, well, thank you so much, Katie. That's very sweet of you. Um, I wanted to do something like this for, I would say like I had the idea for it shortly after the first book was written. And then we had almost, I think I had almost sold it before COVID in 2019. I can't even remember that year at this point. And then we all know what happened with the world, you know, it just didn't move forward. And all of a sudden in March, 2020, everyone in the world was suddenly stuck at home, suddenly freaking out, suddenly taking on all of these roles. Maybe they were like Zoom homeschooling and also working, or, you know, they lost access to in-person coping mechanisms. They found themselves reeling in their grief. They were maybe losing people to COVID, or they were having people die in their lives whose funerals they couldn't go to because we couldn't go anywhere. So the modern loss community during that time really ballooned, like really ballooned, not just with people who had just gone through a loss, but people who were living with loss, who were suddenly like, oh my God, like, I can no longer have that brunch that I have every month with my friends. Like I need, Mm. like I need to fill that in somewhere, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they came to us and needed connection. And that's when I really pivoted to this, all these online events that I started doing to give people a way, it's a low touch way to have, you know, connection with people and talk about things and learn things. You know, we had a lot of sessions led by therapists, led by, you know, different authors and mindfulness experts, trauma experts. But, you know, at the same time, I was going through my own stuff. Like I was living in those early days of COVID too. I had two little kids. My youngest son had turned three on March 7th, 2020. We were living in a 34th floor apartment in Manhattan, which turned into like the apocalypse during Mm. March. And it was very traumatizing for everybody, including myself. And so this handbook really came from my need to provide myself to all these people who are asking for it, but within two covers. And also to provide so much of what I've learned from the global modern loss community and these amazing experts who I've been lucky to develop my relationships with over the years to put all of that in between two covers. I couldn't give of myself much more than I was already giving. I couldn't answer all the DMs. I couldn't give all the talks that I was being asked to give on Zoom because I was trying to keep my own head above water too. So that's when I was like, you know, this is the time to write this book. Like I have something to say, I've got to say it. And so I wrote it in like the darkest days of COVID. Was that easy to find a publisher for? I'm just interested, like, again, because we've talked about what this is in the public domain and how it's received. And it doesn't sound like a very commercial entity, you know, like might be a response. Was it quite straightforward finding someone to pick it up? I sold it within three days. That's great. Oh, I love that. And it was at auction. Wow. I will say that I I would have been surprised had it not been such a sought after project because I had been so committed to this space 
to my financial detriment, you know, mm. over the course of so many years, like so committed to this mission. And I knew what I was talking about. It wasn't like something where I'm like, oh, I'm going to just like start writing about grief. It's a pandemic. No, 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 no. Like I have been doing this, living this, breathing this, sleeping this for 24 seven since 2013 and personally since 20, 2006. So I'd already, of course, had one book out, which did quite well. I, you know, had a large global community at the time. So I am very self-deprecating. I will second and triple and quadruple guess myself till the cows come home. With this project, I knew that it was going to be wanted by somebody because I knew that we needed it. Mm -hmm. We really needed it. Yeah. And the website and the community had already showed you that, hadn't it? Community had shown me that. There was a lot of requests for it. And, you know, the point of the book is to help you to do three things. Figure out how to stay connected to your person in the wake of a loss, how to stay connected to yourself. And we're talking about how to treat your body and your mind, how to deal with anxiety and therapies and art and music, et cetera. Mindfulness, like how to just treat yourself okay, and how to stay connected to the world around you. How do you work? How do you have your career? How do you navigate social dynamics, intimate relationships after a loss and not lose your goddamn mind? You yeah, because it's so consuming, isn't it? It's, it's so all consuming. And consuming. people also don't tell you. They don't yeah, and tell it's you so like, cool. hey, you know, like you're going to lose friends by the by. Like, I'm sorry, that's an awful thing to share, but you're probably going to when something really hard happens to you that makes other people uncomfortable. Katie, I'm sure you can relate to this, mm, right? Absolutely. Not everybody can hang with your hard thing. It's not fair, but it's the reality. And so how do you navigate that? And also like going back to what you were saying about toxic positivity, how do you figure out how to deal with those people and speak up for yourself? How do you share your narrative without the world deciding what it is for you? How do you draw boundaries with people who kind of suck and right now in your lives, you know, mm -hmm. even good friends who are just not coming through for you? Or how do you figure out how to say, listen, what you're doing how you're relating to me is not working. You know, I would love if you would try this and give them a chance. Like we just don't have scripts for this stuff. And the reason that I personally <laughs> like the book is because it's not a journal, but it's interactive. So there are many places where you can write in it. You can try things because I, like I said, people want an invitation to engage with this stuff. There are stickers. stickers. I fought for that. I wanted stickers. There's stickers. I'm so glad the there end. are stickers. And I love your doodles as well. Just all Thanks. the circles and the doodling. Yeah, it's like really beautifully illustrated, it's not really by me. Lovely. And it's very friendly looking. And it really is meant like it's a visual metaphor for how I want people to approach grief and loss, which is out in the open. It can look really beautiful and cool and edgy. You can still have a design sense. You don't have to like suddenly wear like baggy black clothes if you're grieving. That's You can still wear bright orange, bright pink, you know, do your thing. So like this book is beautiful because it needs to be. It needs to be something that people feel comfortable leaving on their coffee table. It needs to be something that people feel like they're willing to live out loud and be unapologetic about. You know, Smart, and it's also yeah. meant to be done in any chronology. Like there's literally no order to this stuff because there's no order to grief and loss. Yeah, that's not so a true. Thing. You know what I love as well? Because it's funny, I talked to, in one of the episodes, I talked to a friend of mine called Deborah, and I'm like, who mm. highlights in their books? Because she always does that. And you've done that in the intro. You've already done the highlighting in blue. And I was like, that is so useful. And that is so clever. Again, a brilliant design. So there's, like you say, there's loads of different things. So there's a section on trigger days, enduring and redefining anniversaries, hallmark holidays, and milestones right will you talk a little bit about that section yeah I mean like and of course like this is you know we're in a big season of trigger days right like this is the uh, we've been in it ever since well in the United States ever since November 1st which is the day after Halloween and all of a sudden November 1st there's like holiday lights everywhere I'm like calm down everyone like literally <laughs> it's November 
but you know, like we we're so into commercialism and consumerism that we need to figure out what the next season is. So this holiday festivity season, I call it the stressmas season. It lasts from like November 1st to January 2nd, right? That's what it is. That's two months of agony for people who are living with anything, hard illness, grief, you know, job loss, relationship loss, divorce, death loss, anything, because it's a time of revelry, of sparkly lights, of clinking champagne glasses, of, you know, joy to the world, you know, and it's like, okay, it's also a time that feels very disingenuous to many of us, which is like, yes, we should feel joy. Of course, I encourage everybody to seek out the joy or hold on to the moments of joy that pop up because yeah, I, I promise if you're grieving, you'll feel like crap again. Don't worry, like it's going to happen. So embrace those moments of joy that surprise you. But I wish that we would talk about the holiday time as being a mixed bag of feelings for mm. nearly every human. Like, unless you're just like someone who nothing bad has ever happened to, it's going to be a mixed bag of feelings. At the very least, you might feel a little lonely, you know, like if we could just talk about the fact that it's not all merry and bright, you know, that there are places around the table where we're wishing someone were there that holidays can serve as time machines and hallmark holidays too, right? Like Mother's Day, Father's Day, because we can remember a moment in time in the past in that exact day or date where we were with that person. Yeah. It can really mess us up emotionally. It can really, we, we really do a number on ourselves. Uh, birthdays, diagnosis versaries. I don't know about you, Katie, but for that, like, Whenever my mom's death day, which is September 4th, is like coming around, my whole body gets tense Okay, for weeks. This is what I highlighted in the book, the mind-body-grief continuum. Because something happens physically for me. It's August for me as well. And I remember like one year, four or five years after my dad died, crying uncontrollably in August, not knowing what was going on. And suddenly I realized this is around the build up to and the day that my father passed away. And I think my body just knew, yeah. right? Do you believe that too? It sounds like, you know, there's a yeah. whole thing in One million percent. It's amazing. Yes. I don't think that it's like a woo thing. I don't think it's like, oh, like a sixth sense. No, no, no. The body keeps the score. Yeah. And I can say that because that's the name of a book that's been a bestseller on the New York Times list for years on end by a guy named Bessel van der Kolk about trauma and the body and how it's like really ingrained in at the cellular level. The body keeps the score. It holds on to this stuff. And I'm not saying that to sound threatening. I'm saying it to say, if you don't deal with your shit, your body is not going to let go of it just because you're ignoring it. I think the subtitle in my chapter, the mind body grief continuum is you can fool everyone but yourself. Your body mm. knows, your body knows at a cellular level when that diagnosis anniversary is coming around when, you know, my, I call it anniversary season for me. It starts, this is September 4th with my mom's death day. It ends New Year's Day. And in between, I have joyful holidays, like both of my parents' birthdays, their wedding anniversary, a billion Jewish holidays, my dad's death date. <laughs> like, it's like ridiculous. It's so insulting. So I'm generally like not super thrilled, like, you know, at a base level for those months. And so it is not like anyone listening to me who has been struggling with this, you are not crazy. It is a very real thing that, you know, it just is. And by the way, it's something that may never go away, but it isn't something that you should suffer through. And that is what my book is about. Like these things are what they are. I wish I could turn back the clock. I wish I could bring your person back. I do not have that magical ability, you know, like if I yeah. did, I would be incredibly wealthy and I'm not, but I can say that, yes, this will always suck, but it doesn't have to be something that you suffer through. You should not suffer. So while it will always be hard, you need to identify what is making you suffer and figure out what you need in order to not suffer. And it's probably a combination across the long arc of, you know, your experience with loss of the right therapy, the right 
coping mechanisms, toolboxes, which I try and provide in this handbook, everything from like mindfulness techniques to physical techniques, to nature, to writing, to creative exercises, to destructive. I think I tell you to like go smash some plates against the wall in a very safe and controlled space, of course. It's a combination of things like of creative writing, of prompts, you know, that don't, they don't all work on any given moment, but one of them will work on any given moment. And the more you build this toolbox out, the more you really are going to have the coping mechanisms for moving through this in a way that makes you feel like you are building resilience, which is something that can be built upon. It yeah. is not a limited thing that we're, we're not born with a limited supply of it. So my whole thing is, I don't want anyone to suffer. You'll have pain it's always going to feel like an individual experience, but it should not feel like such an isolating one. Well, I think you've achieved an amazing thing with this book and you're giving so much back and it all it all makes so much sense. That's the brilliant thing about what you've done, Rebecca. It's like, yeah, you've pinpointed, you've kind of taken something, we just lived with a nonsensical way of dealing with grief and you've kind of gone, hang on. Has anyone else noticed this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is just phenomenal. And I think it's brilliant. And so I know much. you're doing a brilliant job of getting the word out there. But in all these interviews that you're doing, you're really helping people as well because you're showing so much about your knowledge and what you've come to learn and what you've come to understand about the process of grief. So I really commend you for that. Thank you for Thank doing you. that. And look, I say the same right back at you, Katie. I mean, so much of this is like, we just need to share stories and you are doing the same exact thing. You know, like the world needs more podcasts like yours. You know, the world does not need just another podcast. Like I think we're <laughs> there saturated <are> <laughs> there, but it needs this. Just like I say, like the internet is going to bring us all down. It's like the world's most awful place. But when it comes to building communities around hard things, helping people through illness, through loss in these special communities, that is when it is an amazing thing. It does work. And so, you know, thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for having me on. Thank you, know, you for being here. Let's both on. keep let's both keep doing what we're doing then. Yeah. I'm gonna try. I have a lot <laughs> of coffee sure. pods in my house, so I'll go as long as I can. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, Rebecca. Thank you so much for speaking to me. Thanks, Katie. It's lovely to see you. That was the lovely Rebecca Soffer, all the way in Austin. I really enjoyed speaking to Rebecca. I mean, I think I could speak to her for a really long time, actually. She talked about her career prior to the modern loss as a journalist and working in satire. And my God, like you have to be super quick. You have to be really fast. Your brain has to always be ahead. And I can see that that's something she has a very natural knack for. And she's applied that really in this work because she's been quite forward thinking if you think about it. I loved chatting to her and I think this book, The Modern Loss Handbook, is a genius idea and a great gift for anyone. Because let's face it, like we've all experienced grief in some way. So yeah, that was the lovely Rebecca and thanks again for talking to me. I guess I'm here again in this sort of slightly funny place, this slightly limbo place of, you know, it's been over three weeks since my last blood checks. I'm next due to have my bloods checked and see Kate Newbold next week. So I'm kind of waiting for that to happen and still feeling really quite well physically. I'm so much more active than I've been in such a long time and it feels amazing to be that active and especially like in light of my conversation with Carolyn the other week. I know there's great benefits to that. I know that by exercising, I am just giving my body a really good chance of sort of dealing with the cancer and the treatment and all the side effects that come with that. But, you know, it's funny, I've been watching this brilliant series. If you've got National Geographic, I thoroughly recommend. It's a six-part series starring Chris Hemsworth, who, you know, is perfectly pleasant to look at. So if you don't enjoy the series, you'll have a good time anyway. He sort of takes on a different challenge every week. 
but he does it in a way that is looking at different elements of himself and sort of physically how he is and how he's feeling. So he looks at like taking on a challenge that really challenges his stress levels and monitors his stress levels throughout. And then he takes on another challenge around food and glucose and what glucose does to the body. There's lots of these different episodes. And then you get to the end and it's really all about acceptance, accepting the very fact that we are all going to die and accepting the very fact that if you're lucky, you're going to age as well. And it's a brilliant, brilliant episode because it talks to different people who've had to accept different things in their lives around old age or dying or illness or loss. Dinch and I sat and watched it. I think we both felt really strongly while we were watching it and we kind of looked at each other at the end of the episode and we were like, wow, this is really hard to swallow but really important you know, this is something that we're living with, but we're all living with this. That's the point that this made. So, you know, yes, I'm living with this more than your average person who isn't living with cancer or isn't living with an incurable cancer as well. And I think that that just forces me to accept the very thing that we are all going to have to face one stage in our life, at the end of our life, and that's death. And I make the distinction when I chat to Rebecca that, you know, she's not an expert on death. She's an expert on grief and loss. But I think that there is something around grieving your life when you come to accept death. And you know, it's a different type of grief, but it's a kind of grief because you are facing the loss of your life. I genuinely believe and I feel that I don't know when my time will come, despite what I'm living with. I really don't know. And I've said it here before, like I'm hopeful that I'm going to live a very long life. But I still know that I have to accept this. It is my reality. It's everybody's reality. And I think, you know, for me, the acceptance comes with really living life. And I was chatting to a friend today and I was saying, you know, it's really interesting when I'm living out my life, basically day to day, it's not those big, huge things that really give it the meaning. It's the small stuff. I've said it before. It's the everyday stuff. It's the connections that I have. It's my surroundings, my environment. It's the weather. It's the leaves on the ground. It's the seasons. It's the holidays. It's the love that I feel for my husband and lots of other people in my life. It's so many things. It's Monty. It's my cat, Bonjuk. It's actually, I don't know why we call those things the small things, because they're not small things. They're really, really big things. And I think, like, that's what the acceptance is for me. The acceptance is being in those things for really, really feeling them, really experiencing them. It's for me, it's not bungee jumping. And it's not, you know, flying to Australia or seeing the seven wonders of the world. Like, it might be that for other people, and that's wonderful. But I think those everyday things are immense and intense and wonderful and bring me wonder and joy. I just still question whether I really have accepted this, this diagnosis and this path that I'm now on. I don't know, because I think, like, I guess I expect my identity to incorporate that. And I think it does. I mean, it must do, you know, big part of it is this podcast. And that's a huge part of who I've become because of the cancer. But I guess it's still 
where I struggle is the kind of finding the other people that I relate to and that I feel are really my people. And I think, you know, I've talked before about how I can walk into a room filled with people with cancer and there's something there and there is, there is something we all share. But I think, you know, what I'm still wondering and I'm still searching for, I guess, is my own place of community. Just having, you know, like a group of friends of other people a bit like me with cancer. And it's funny because as I'm talking about this, I realise like because of my Instagram and because of this podcast, I have built a bit of a community. And actually what I'm thinking is, you know, some really great people have reached out to me and got in touch. And it's been really lovely. And maybe it's up to me, actually, reach out back to those people and to say, what about we get together? I think that is something I could and should definitely do. So it's funny, isn't it? I'm kind of on here talking about this and it's potentially leading me to that. So who knows? Who knows if that's what will come out of this? I've renamed my lovely listeners who are sending me voice notes, Voices with Cancer. And I really appreciate, like I've said every week, I really appreciate you reaching out to me, sharing your story with me and sending me a voice note. So this week I've got a voice note from the lovely Fee and I'm going to play that for you now. Hi, my name is Fifi and I was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer in the height of the pandemic in September 2020. I found a lump on my right breast during the summer and yeah, I got my best friend Kirsty to feel the lump we were swimming with our boys. And I'm really glad I did because she really pushed me to contact my GP um, because I didn't for about a month. I just sat on it. I was scared and it was really unknown uh, what the future would hold for me. I just had this premonition that it was cancer. Um, but she messaged me pretty much every other day, pushing me to go and speak to a GP. And I did. And I had to wait about two weeks for my appointment up at the breast clinic. And I was pretty much diagnosed that day with breast cancer. I went on to have two lumpectomies and I didn't have chemotherapy, but I had targeted radiotherapy. Um, this was all on my own uh, due to the pandemic. I am one year NED, which is no evidence of disease hopefully praying to hit my two year um, at the beginning of March. It's changed me massively in so many aspects. I love more. I'm a, a huge empath anyway, but I'm even more of an empath. And it's just made me really determined to share cancer awareness with as many people as possible. I could go on and say much so much more but I hope that gives you a little bit of insight into my breast cancer diagnosis. Thank you Fifi and the thing in your story that really resonated with me was the fact that you waited you had this lump and you waited and I totally get that it's such a scary prospect going to see a doctor about a lump and despite all the awareness that's out there you know, it still, I think it just, it takes a lot to go and get that looked at. And so I think there are lots of people like that out there. And I hope that it doesn't come with any regret or beating yourself up. I know that's easy to say. And in reality, it, it's probably a different thing. But I've learned that, yeah, like I said, we're not alone in, in sitting on these things um, I, I just really think it's part of the process in a way. And I just want to also say congratulations. And that's really great news that you have no evidence of disease. That's brilliant. And also good for you for continuing to share your story to raise awareness. That's brilliant. So thank you for being this week's Voice with Cancer. And that's everything from me, guys. 
Thanks again for listening. It's been lovely having you, as always. And I am really excited to share that next week's episode is with another Institute of Cancer research, Professor Trevor Graham. He talks all about how his work is in the evolution of cancer genes and how cancer genes evolve. He looks at how and why they evolve and how and why they become drug resistant. So um, we have a really good chat and that's in next week's episode. Thanks, guys. Have a lovely week and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.